you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I want to ask you to open up to Romans chapter 12. We started a study in this chapter last week that's going to take us actually quite some time as we pick apart just one chapter of the Bible. It starts very powerfully with these words. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, as we get into this this morning, we're going to ask you to lead us in our study. We're going to ask you, Father, to convict us if necessary. We're asking you, certainly to teach us and to stretch us. But Father, what we're asking is that you allow us to understand the depth of all that Paul was teaching, that we might arrive at the place that he's encouraging us to, a place where we are offering everything that we have and everything that we are to you as worship. Lord, that may take us to some places that we never thought we needed to go. I pray that you'll whisper to us that it's all right, that you'll meet us there. Father, it may cause us to think about some things in our lives like we've never thought about them before. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us receive the peace necessary to place those things before you as a sacrifice. And I pray more than anything that our worship offered before you, whether together as a church or individually, will be holy and pleasing, and that we will do it willingly. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Father, teach us now, would you? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to do something that I don't do very often. I want to share with you right out of a book. This one was written by a fellow named Pat Williams. He is the senior vice president of the Orlando Magic. For the past 50 years, he has been involved in professional sports that has taken him all kinds of different places. He made a stop in Chicago, another one in Atlanta, another in Philadelphia, and then eventually in Orlando. In 1987, he co-founded the magic with another man, and they have been blessed repeatedly. Now, those are not the things that inspire me about Pat Williams. There are other things that really grab my attention, like this. He has written over 45 books on leadership, parenting, and the Christian life. Now that, in and of itself, is pretty remarkable, but that's not what really inspires me about Pat Williams. This does. He has 19 children, 14 of which he and his wife adopted from four foreign countries. This man lives what he preaches. He believes what he teaches. He believes that his life is to be transformed by Jesus, and he believes it is to be a sacrifice. And he has shown that repeatedly. With that in mind, I want you to understand the authority with which he writes. And then listen to these words. Jameer Nelson is the starting point guard for the Orlando Magic. He was mentored, coached, and raised in Chester, Pennsylvania by his father, Floyd Pete Nelson, a welder and dock worker who built and maintained tugboats at a shop on the Delaware River. On August 30th, 2007, Pete Nelson was reported missing from the job site. The police and rescue crews were called in. 
but Pete wasn't to be found. Jameer went home to Chester to help in the search for his 57-year-old father. The NBA star couldn't stop thinking of all kinds of scenarios to explain his dad's disappearance, all of them bad. Had his dad been kidnapped? Would there be a ransom note demanding money from Jameer? Or had Pete suffered heat stroke or a heart attack and fallen into the water? The hardest part was not knowing. On September 1st, Jameer was at the Delaware River taking part in the search when Pete's body was found downriver across from my hometown in Wilmington, Delaware. The fishermen who discovered the body notified the authorities and Pete's body was pulled from the water two days after his disappearance. Pete Nelson was a tough guy, a retired Marine who survived being wounded in Vietnam. He taught all of his boys, including Jameer, the importance of being strong in tough times. Jameer and his brothers called him Pops. Ask Jameer how he remembers his dad and he'll tell you about Pete Nelson's ridiculous tall tales and his mouth-watering barbecue. Jameer will also tell you about the time when, at age 9 or 10, he brought home a failing grade from school. His mom grounded him, and that meant no basketball. So Jameer's dad took him aside and lectured him about the importance of bringing up those grades. And then he sneaked Jameer out to his basketball practices and games. Jameer's mom didn't find out that she'd been hoodwinked until more than a decade later after her son had been drafted into the NBA. After Jameer achieved stardom in the NBA, he tried to talk his dad into retiring. You don't have to work so hard anymore, Pops, he'd say. Why don't you let me make things easier for you? But Pete Nelson had always enjoyed working with his hands and wasn't ready to give it up. Pete Nelson was reported missing around lunchtime. To this day, the cause of his death remains a mystery. No one knows how a tough Marine, a man who could handle himself in any situation, could have ended up being pulled from the Delaware River. It makes no sense. Jameer had given up trying to understand it, concluding, All I can say is that it was his time to go. The funeral was held on September 7th at St. Luke's Community Christian Church in Chester. The Magic chartered the team plane, and we invited all of Jameer's teammates and the Magic staff to go to Chester for the funeral. I went on the plane with the team. Although we arrived at 10 o'clock, an hour before the service, a huge throng of people already packed the pews. Pete Nelson was a much-beloved man in the area. He had coached youth sports and mentored many young people, and he had a huge cadre of fans and friends. I had never attended a funeral quite like this one. First, every person in the church filed up to the front row to offer personal condolences to the Nelson family. That took about an hour. Then came the music, the scripture readings, and the eulogies. Jameer's Orlando Magic teammate, Dwight Howard, got up and told the congregation, as Jameer's teammates, we've come to show that we're a team, we're a family. Jameer may have lost his earthly father, but nothing can take away his heavenly father. The congregation was clearly moved by Dwight's words. The officiating minister, Bishop Anthony Hanna Sr., was Pete Nelson's son-in-law, married to Jameer's sister. He stood and said in a powerful, stirring voice, You have heard for years that you are not to question God and that it's wrong to question God. Let me tell you, that's a fallacy. You can question God all you want. He can handle it. The question we're all asking is, why did Pete Nelson have to die? I'll tell you why Pete Nelson had to die. If he hadn't died, you wouldn't be in church today, would you? He died to make you better, to make you stronger, to make you wiser. Some of you need to be living better. Some of you are weak and you need to be stronger. Some of you are making bad decisions, so you need to be wiser. I have to tell you something. 
There is only one way for you to be better, stronger, and wiser. Only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can make you better, stronger, and wiser. Now, interesting story that Pat Williams tells. True story, as a matter of fact. Two parts of that really resonated with me. Their statements made at the end of the story. Here's the first one. Take a look again. This was said by Bishop Hannah. Why did Pete Nelson have to die? I'll tell you why Pete Nelson had to die. If he hadn't died, you wouldn't be in church today, would you? He died to make you better, stronger, and wiser. Now, he lays that out for them to think about, and I'm sure he had their attention as soon as he said that. Every person in that crowd, and apparently there were a lot, would have sat up and paid attention. And Bishop Hannah wisely followed this statement like this. There is only one way for you to be better, stronger, and wiser. Only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can make you better, stronger, and wiser. That is so true. There is only one way for us to be better, stronger, and wiser. There is only one way for us to continue growing deeper in the life that God has for us, and that's through relationship with Jesus Christ. We may try all kinds of different things, but this is the only way. If you want to be better, stronger, and wiser, then let Jesus lead you into it. That's what Romans chapter 12 is all about. It is all written to make us better, stronger, and wiser. The Apostle Paul knew what he was saying. He really did. That shouldn't shock anybody. And the way he starts that chapter should have our attention. In fact, it should have our attention so much that we are sitting on the edge of our seats because Paul is telling us, if you want to be better, stronger, and wiser, if you want to be the best version of you, then I have the answers for you, and I'll show them to you. And this entire chapter lays it out for us. Like I've already said, we're going to spend several weeks investigating what Paul had to say in these few short verses. And by the time we're done, hopefully you'll be able to say, I am better, stronger, and wiser because of Jesus. But take a look at how he starts this chapter. He does it with the use of a word that really, anytime you see it in Scripture, should give you pause. It's one of those words that will make you look backwards to determine what the writer is talking about. And it's a simple word that is easy to overlook, particularly if we just jump into something without really paying attention to everything that led up to it. What I mean by that is this. If you start into Romans chapter 12 without having read the 11 chapters preceding it, then this word won't make much sense to you. But if you see it and will stop and go back to determine what it is connecting you to, then it will have great meaning. That word is therefore. The word therefore, when it shows up in Scripture, should always be a pause for you. Therefore, should it make you want to ask the question, what? Or why? Therefore. Therefore what? Therefore why? Well, in this particular case, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is all about helping us understand who Jesus is. The next four chapters, 12 through 16, are all about us learning how to live as a result of who Jesus is. In fact, this is the fourth, therefore, 
of the book of Romans. Here they all are, just so you can see them. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, contains the therefore of condemnation, leveling the playing field for every person. We see the word condemnation and we really get upset by it. We are condemned in the three chapters leading up to Romans chapter 3. And then we get this therefore of condemnation that says, we are all sinners. We are all people that have fallen short of the glory of God. That's not encouraging news. So Paul says, therefore, as a result of our sin, we all deserve death. That's the therefore of condemnation. But by Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we find the second therefore of the book, the therefore of justification. Now, justification is just this gigantic biblical Christian word that really means this. Because of Jesus, all of the guilt and penalty of our sin has been removed, and we have been placed in right standing with God. That's what justification means. And it only comes as a result of Jesus Christ. That's it. So once we make our way through the condemnation and quickly get to the justification, everything begins to change. We don't have to be depressed and discouraged anymore because of who we are. The result of Jesus says that all of that is gone and we stand before the Lord as a new person. And By Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we get to the third, therefore, that of assurance. Now, the therefore of assurance is really quite an interesting thing. It leads to two doctrines within the church, and they have been hotly debated. One doctrine is called the doctrine of eternal security. We know it in a more familiar way as the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Those who believe in that doctrine would teach that once you become a Christian, you will never have to worry about losing your salvation. Once you have been saved, you will remain saved forever. The problem with that doctrine is that the Bible doesn't necessarily teach it. The Bible teaches something just a little bit different called the doctrine of assurance of salvation. And that's what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is all about. The assurance of salvation says that once you become a Christian, if you will remain in Christ, you have no worries. If you will stay in Christ, God will never take your salvation away from you. The doctrine of assurance of salvation says that you can walk away from it. You can leave the faith. The Lord loves you enough to leave that door open. All you have to do is read parables like the parable of the prodigal son to understand that and go all the way through the New Testament. You'll see people that were close to Jesus and then they chose to leave Jesus. The assurance of salvation says that as long as I remain in Christ, I have no worries. As long as I continue growing, the Lord is never going to remove my salvation from me. And you hold on to that. God does not randomly take salvation away from people. God does not even take salvation away from people based on sin. But you may choose to walk away from your salvation. It's called apostatizing from your faith. You can do that. The Lord loves you enough to allow that. So the doctrine of assurance helps us know that all we have to do is stay in Christ and the worries fall away. The therefore of assurance in Romans chapter 8 helps us know that. And the therefore of Romans 12 drives it home. It's the therefore of dedication. I am going to devote my life to the Lord. I'm going to live the way God wants me to. I'm going to do the things that God has laid before me that I might be better, stronger, 
and wiser that I might be everything that he wants me to be. That's the whole doctrine of dedication. And that's what this chapter is all about. Now, what we will find very quickly in Romans chapter 12 is that dedication to the Lord requires three parts of us. The first is our body, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. The next is our mind. We're going to get into that next week. And then we have the third aspect, which is our will. And we are really going to be picking that apart in the weeks to come. Now, interestingly enough, all you have to do is look at the world to know that the world wants to control your mind. Maybe, just maybe, you were watching some Senate hearings this past week, and if you were paying attention to the talking heads afterwards that were trying to tell you what you should believe, not that you should arrive at conclusions on your own, but they were trying to tell you what you should believe, you can see the world's patterns. They want to control your thinking. Well, that's not what God wants to do at all. God wants to transform your mind by renewing it and redeeming it. That has always been God's plan. And like I said, we're going to get into that more next week. Well, then we come to this issue of the will. The will is really an interesting thing. The mind determines the will, but the will determines the body. It's a progressive thing that God has put forward. When we will allow the Lord to have access to our will, that will help us determine what we do with our body, what we do with the things that God has given us, what we do with the opportunities that are put in front of us. That's all part of the transformation as well. And that's what Romans chapter 12 is all about. So Paul starts out with this, therefore, that causes us to say, in view of God's mercy, because of all that God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, we are to live a certain way. And then he uses crazy, interesting terminology like this. You are to offer your body. Now, what does that mean? For a lot of people, in and of itself, that statement is a stumbling block. Offer my body? Why would God want it? There are a lot of people that might say things like this. When I look at my body, I know that I'm overweight or I know that I'm underweight. I know that I'm wrinkled. I know that I am blotchy. I know that I am full of aches and pains. At times, I feel completely diseased. Why would God want my body? There are other people that would say, I am missing teeth. I am by nature nervous or panicky. I might even be controlling and I use my body to do that. I find myself feeling completely disabled at times. Why would I offer something like that before God? Or other people say superficial things like this should keep them distant from this command. I'm nearsighted or I am farsighted. I have too much hair or I don't have enough hair. There's all kinds of things that people will use as an excuse to not do what Paul is saying. But that means that we're not looking deep into the command. Because here's the truth of it. God is not interested in the way you look. He's not interested at all. In the Old Testament, a perfect physical sacrifice was required. A perfect specimen of a bull, a goat, or a dove was required by God. But the New Testament says this about that requirement. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No matter how perfect they were, no matter how void of blemishes they might have been, 
it was impossible for them to take away sins. So God offered his son as the perfect sacrifice without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins that justified us and opened up our entrance into the throne room of God that we might stand in his presence. As a result of that, today, when we make sacrifices before God, we do it through his son, Jesus Christ. Just listen to this. Peter writes these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Any sacrifice that we make is through Jesus. And as a result of that, this doesn't matter. What you look like, even what you feel like, does not matter. God isn't interested in the outside of you. He is interested in the inside of you. He's interested in your heart, what you would bring before him in the purest of ways, not physically, but through behavior, through action, through the giftedness of who God created you to be. Lord, I want you to have this part of me, the inside part of me. I want you to have the things that matter to you the most. In fact, Paul would actually use this term in Romans chapter 12. We are to offer these things before God in holiness. In holiness. Which means we start thinking about some things differently when we offer our bodies before God. Like this, the psalmist would capture it. In Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I'm going to start thinking about the words of my mouth and the things of my heart, the meditations of my heart. When I'm offering my body to the Lord, that's what I'm offering. So that applies to the man that works in a shop and he hears nothing but crude comments all day long and crass jokes. When he decides not to participate in those things, he is offering his body. He's saying, Lord, this is the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. I'm not going to let those words come out of my mouth and I'm not going to let my heart rest on those things. Rather, I'm going to let those be changed. That's the lady who chooses not to judge other people when her entire circle of friends does that very thing all the time. They're constantly sitting in judgment of others and they like to share those things that make them feel better. Well, the lady who says, I'm not going to participate in that is actually choosing to say, I'm not going to do that because the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are going to glorify God, not glorify what my friends want glorified. That's what it means to offer your body. That means that I'm going to offer everything that matters to the Lord to him. Well, Paul doesn't want to just leave us hanging there with a big old cherry like that, that that's what we're supposed to do. So he actually takes it deeper that we might really understand this. So he says, I not only want you to offer your body, the words of your mouth, the meditations of your heart, your behaviors and your actions, I want you to do it as a living sacrifice. Now, isn't that a curious statement? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, what is a living sacrifice? We have to get into Scripture to actually explain that because otherwise it's going to be a challenge. We're really going to wrestle with the idea. 
There are two beautiful examples of living sacrifices in Scripture. And the first one, very few people will ever have the opportunity to attain, though some will. It is found in Jesus. Jesus is a living sacrifice because he died on the cross and then he rose again from the grave. He gave his life so that we might live. He gave his life, his very physical life, as a testimony of who he was. Now, I say that very few people will have the opportunity to achieve that. When I say that, it it works in Western Christianity, meaning this. We don't think about having to physically die because of our faith. Oh, we've heard people talk about it, but we don't ever think that that's something that we're going to face. In fact, in modern Western Christianity, we don't often think about the people that are having to do that very thing. But here are the most recent statistics that have come out. Fox News actually wrote an article on this just one year ago. Fox News wrote about this very thing. On an average, every year, 90,000 people die for the name of Jesus. 90,000. That is one every six minutes. Now, they put those statistics together from 2005 to 2015, and they studied that out during that 10-year period when over 900,000 people were killed for the name of Jesus. And they did so because they were forced to. They did so because that option was put in front of them. You either renounce your faith or die. And they chose to die. Today, their testimony lives on in the lives of many people, their friends, their family, those that they lived around. They have become living sacrifices. They died for their faith that others might be strengthened in theirs. But then there's this other illustration in the Bible that helps us understand really what Paul's talking about. It's found in the Old Testament. His name is Isaac. Isaac was Abraham and Sarah's son. He was a child of promise given after years of wanting and waiting. Isaac came as a a promise that God had made to them that they at times wrestled with ever believing it would be fulfilled. And then God, after he fulfilled the promise with them, asked Abraham to do something really quite dramatic. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 22. We don't have enough time to go there this morning, but let me encourage you to read it on your own. In Genesis chapter 22, God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. You take him up on the mountain, I want you to build an altar, and I want you to place him on that altar, and I want you to plunge a knife into his heart, and then I want you to set the altar on fire. Now that's a little bit of a paraphrase, but that's the way it actually worked. And Abraham said, okay, I will. He didn't talk to his wife about it. He just took Isaac and some servants and some wood and some stone, and he headed up on Mount Moriah to do exactly what God had asked him to do. When they got up on the mountain, Isaac, his son, looked around and said, I see everything that we need for this sacrifice, but where is the ram? Where is the animal? And God said to Isaac, the Lord will provide. Time came when Abraham had to explain to Isaac that you're the sacrifice, Isaac. And though the Bible doesn't lay it out for us to see it just like this, here's the truth of it. Isaac said, okay. If that's what's called for, Lord, okay. If that's what's called for, Dad, okay. And he climbed up on the altar. And in the very last minute, as Abraham was ready to plunge that knife into the chest of his son, God stayed his hand, and he provided the ram. 
And Isaac got off of the altar to live from that point forward as a living sacrifice. He offered himself to the Lord. Whatever you need, Lord. Whatever you want. If that's what you want, you can have it. If you want my life, you can have it. Whatever you want from me, you can have it. That's a living sacrifice. So Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because of what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, offer everything that you have. Offer everything that you are, that you might be a living sacrifice. I don't know what it is that you have to leave on the altar, but there's something. There's always something. That every one of us, when we come before the Lord, have to recognize that God is is transforming within us that we might leave it on the altar because of what God has done for us. In view of His mercy, in view of His gift, in view of Jesus, I'll let this be transformed. I will offer this before the Lord. And the Bible says that when we do that, we do so as an act of worship. We do so to give glory to the Lord for all that He has done for us. It is a mistake within Christianity to believe that worship only happens at church. Oh, great worship happens at church. Corporate worship happens at church. But it is a mistake to believe that all worship involves singing or praying. There are other aspects of worship. And that's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is teaching us. Sometimes the greatest aspects of worship come when we are willing to say to the Lord, I will lay this part of my life on the altar and you can have it. And God says, thank you. And that becomes its own, this is the terminology from the Bible, spiritual act of worship. It's a sacrifice given before the Lord. It's a sacrifice that we offer to him that he might be glorified and honored and that others might be strengthened as a result. It's a spiritual act of worship. And God asked for it from us, yet we run from it for some reason. So I want to take you back to where we began this morning, back to the story that Pat Williams told of Jameer's dad, Pete Nelson. Bishop Hannah would look out at that crowd and say, he died so that you'd be in church today. He died to make you better, stronger, and wiser. And the only way that that can happen is through Jesus. There's all kinds of teaching in the Bible that would drive that home. I really like this from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul teaches the church in Philippi, if you really want to do this, if you really want to be a living sacrifice, then have the same mind as Jesus Christ. And that means love the Lord your God and love others. 
That's really what it boils down to. Don't think better of yourself than you should. Offer all of that before the Lord because you're not perfect. Without Him, you're not perfect. But in Him, you're purified. So do the things that the Lord wants you to do. Let Jesus shine in your life. And as a living sacrifice, that's exactly what happened. John the Baptist figured that out probably better than anybody else. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, he would say to his disciples when they were concerned that Jesus was asking too much of John, John would say, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus has to become greater. I have to become less. That's a living sacrifice. And when it is applied, we are going to be better, stronger, and wiser. We are going to grow in the Lord. And ultimately... That's what it's all about. We'll get into how that affects your mind and how it changes your will in the coming weeks. You might want to spend some time in Romans chapter 12 reading it every day so that it really becomes a part of your devotional life as we continue to explore this. It's going to take us a while to plumb the depths of it. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, the deep teaching of Romans chapter 12 is transformational. There's no question about it. So thank you for including it in the Bible. Thank you for the instruction we find there and the road map that is laid out before us. Lord, I pray that we'll pay attention and I pray that we'll take the right steps. And I pray that together as a church, we will become better, stronger, and wiser because of you. But Father, I know that begins with individuals making that choice. And I'm praying this morning that every one of us will. In Jesus' name, amen.